Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Airmic Talks, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. I am your host, Richard Gutcher, and I am pleased to say we are turning our attention to returning back to work and what important health, safety and legal considerations need to be taken in order to do that. I'm delighted to say that to talk through these issues, I'll be joined by two partners from BLM, Julian Cox and Philip Carney. As well as ensuring a safe working environment, there are also complex considerations such as the risks, liabilities and insurance responsibilities in relation to secondments, the possibility of the transfer of undertakings, protection of employment regulations, commonly referred to as 2P, becoming particularly relevant, and the impact on business immigration requirements. Please do remember that the easiest way to listen regularly to the Airmit Talks podcast and have every episode downloaded straight to your device is to subscribe for free on any podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox or any other. But without further ado, there is plenty for us to get stuck into here. So here I am in conversation with Julian Cox and Philip Carney of BLM on Life After Lockdown. So since lockdown began, Julian, a large proportion of the workforce has been furloughed and, and moving to work from home where possible. We've also seen some companies second staff to carry out tasks in response to crisis that are quite different from their regular day jobs. What are some of the, the risks associated with these secondments? Well, it's true that uh, companies have moved to second staff and there are risks involved, particularly when moving staff, seconding them to another employer. This can lead to a number of complications and disputes in relation to who is responsible for the work, ensuring appropriate training is provided, protecting business interests, deciding which employer retains overall control of the employee and also termination of the secondment arrangement. So I would strongly recommend that in those circumstances that um, the arrangements are agreed between the original employer, the employee and the host employer uh, to whom the employee is being seconded and the arrangements ought to be put in writing in the form of a secondment agreement. And the agreement needs to touch all bases really. So the agreement ought to um, include the following information as a bare minimum, that the original employer retains overall control for this economy arrangement, that the employee's terms and conditions, what they're going to be, uh, what's going to apply during this economy period, practical arrangements as well in terms of uh, reporting and also how salary and benefits are to be paid and costs met. Also arrangements in terms of um, holiday and sickness, what happens there and uh, discipline grievance, performance. It's all about control, really. And, and the originating employer will want to retain as much control as possible. But at the same time, the host employer is also going to want to have a measure of control because the employee is going to be on their site. So they're going to want to see compliance with their policies and procedures. And they're also going to want to safeguard their confidential information and IP rights whilst on secondment. And uh, the other thing that needs to happen to avoid any claims for unfair dismissal and this is what the employee is going to be very concerned about as well, is what's going to happen at the end of this comment arrangement. Are they going back to the originating employer? Is there going to be an option for them to transfer across permanently to the host employer? And finally, on a practical level, what employers should be 
doing who are seconding staff is that they need to make sure that appropriate training is provided because these employees are going to be moving into new roles and some of these roles are as you quite rightly say rich they're going to be outside of their normal comfort zone and so it's important that training is provided in fulfilling the the role they may have the skills and capabilities but they may not have the experience in in terms of the the role into which they're stepping into so philip if employees are seconded to another organization what kind of checks need to be put in place by the original employer regarding safety uh, ppe and work conditions well i think the starting point here is that as an original employer you owe a personal duty of care to your employees to keep them safe which can't be delegated to another party so in order to keep your employees safe you should look to take the following steps Firstly, I think you should look to visit the site they're going to be working at and have a clear idea as to what tasks your employees are going to be performing. If it's in any way different to their day job, then make sure they have adequate training. Secondly, you should be thinking about safe systems of work. These are simply documents which set out how a task should be carried out, and safe systems of work should be prepared to include any additional member, any additional measures that have been implemented in response to COVID-19, and also updated as the pandemic and working practices evolve. Thirdly, you then need to be thinking about risk assessments very carefully. These need to be suitable given the task being performed and in respect of any new systems of work being adopted. The government has issued guidance for a number of workplaces. However, I have to say the guidance is changing rapidly. So as well as a a general system of risk assessments, it would be wise to implement a system or process for the implementation of dynamic risk assessments in order that your employees can adapt quickly to the, uh, the new site they're in. Fourthly, PPE. Now, the first thing to understand about PPE is there's no absolute duty to provide it. If the employer can take steps uh, such as social distancing to obviate these risks, uh, then it may not be necessary to provide this equipment at all. However, where it is necessary, there is a duty not only to provide suitable PPE, but also to risk assess the tasks and requirements for PPE, provide information, instruction and training on the use of that PPE, and ensure that PPE is maintained and not in a defective state. Next, you need to be thinking of plans for the workplace, so social distancing. It's going to be necessary to review and respond to future guidelines and ensure that suitable adaptions are made. In communal staff areas, it's recommended that there are posters highlighting the need for people to wash their hands or use hand sanitizers uh, where available. It may also be necessary to close some communal areas completely to avoid gatherings of people and to place uh, restrictions on the number of people using the offices. This is clearly an area where you're going to have to work very closely with the host employer. Workplaces may need to implement a rotor system and staggered start times to avoid too many people working in the same area. And you also need to be considering how your staff are going to get to the host employer. Are they going to be using public transport? Crucially, I think you need to make sure that there are systems in place to make sure that anyone who exhibits uh, symptoms of COVID-19 is sent home immediately and this is recorded. You need to make sure that the host employer understands their obligations of the RIDOR system and their need to report this uh, to the HSE. And finally, it's crucial, I think, that both you as the original employer and host employer have thought about these issues together and have a clear plan, and that this plan is communicated to the entire workforce, not just including uh, the employees that are being seconded. And uh, as I say, I think if you take these steps, then you're going to be well on your way to doing all that you can to um, uh, ensure your employees are safe. So have questions already arise then as to having the appropriate insurance policies in place to cover these seconded employees and whose responsibility is it to ensure the right insurance is in place? 
as the uh, original employer owes his employees a duty to keep them safe, as we said before, uh, I think it's fair that the original employer should ensure that they maintain suitable levels of insurance. We should all know that employer's liability insurance is compulsory. The precise type of insurance obviously obtained is driven by the sector that uh, the employees work in and the levels of risk faced. Uh, where employees are seconded, I think the original employer should also check to make sure the host employer has adequate insurances in place. Ultimately, which insurance policy responds will depend upon the precise factual matrix of a given case. And so it's difficult to predict. However, it might help to record what is envisaged with regards to the insurance of employees before they start their secondment. I also think both parties will be well advised to speak to their insurers before the secondment takes place to make sure that they are covered. So we do seem to have entered a second stage of lockdown, uh, Philip, since Boris Johnson's statement on 10th of May. For those businesses welcoming employees back to work, should they be worried about the threat of claims emanating from, from this crisis? I think the short answer is they should be concerned. But as long as you're taking the appropriate steps in line with the guidance issued and keeping a paper trail, then you should be OK. As in any claim for injury, the claimant's employee will have to show their injury was a foreseeable consequence of their work and that their employer breached the relevant standard of care. As a matter of law, it is a settled principle that the employer owes a duty of care to his employees. It is a duty to ensure reasonable steps are taken to provide a safe place and safe system of work and to protect employees against reasonably foreseeable harm. Once a duty is established, the next step is to look for a breach of duty. In short, an employee used to rely upon the employer's breach of the Health and Safety at Work Act and the six-pack regulations underpinning them to establish a breach of duty against the employer. However, the Enterprise Regulatory Reform Act of 2013 effectively removes civil liability of employers for the breach of these statutory duties. Now, an employee must prove that the employer had been negligent in its duty towards the employee. The courts, however, will still consider these regulations to assess whether the defendant has met the required standard of care. An obvious example in the case of where PPE is an issue is that the court will consider Regulation 4 of the Personal Protective Equipment at Work Regulations 1992, which sets out the duty to provide suitable PPE. Finally, you'll need to turn your mind to causation. This is likely to be a hot topic. How does an employee prove that they contracted COVID-19 due to their employer's breach of duty rather than in the wider community, particularly given the issues that we currently have with testing? The employee will need to prove on the balance of probabilities that it was sustained in the workplace by the employer's negligence rather than in the community. Expert evidence in this area will be important, as will testing. Whilst this is proving problematic, the scale of testing is likely to increase drastically over the next few months, making it easier for potential claimants to cross this hurdle. It might be easier for an employee in a healthcare setting to establish causation than an employee in, say, in a logistics setting for this reason. It will also be necessary to consider what the claimant is doing outside of the workplace in terms of family that they are living with, what shops they're visiting. Claimants might try to argue that their employer has materially increased the risk in a similar way to asbestos litigation. However, in asbestos cases, we know that exposure was most likely in the workplace. However, things are less clear here. There is also some debate as to whether the Compensation Act 2006 or Social Action Responsibility and Heroism Act 2015 will have any impact. We shall have to wait and see, but I think it's highly likely that there's going to be a lot of litigation emanating from this crisis. What um, what type of claim is an employer likely to see as a result of COVID-19? 
I think uh, organisations who employ people are likely to see both uh, direct and indirect claims being made. Firstly, direct claims. Well, these are claims where an employee has contracted COVID-19 and is alleging that this was at work and due to their employer's negligence. The types of allegations expected are as follows. Firstly, there will be claims against employers for failing to implement adequate hygiene and cleaning regimes. This will be around hand wash stations, signage in relation to these, and also the cleaning regimes of handrails, handles, buttons, lifts, surfaces, etc. Employees should also be reminded of the need to wash their hands frequently and to catch coughs and colds in tissues. Hand washing facilities need to be readily available, and it's recommended that government-issued safety posters be prominently displayed. Systems in relation to social distancing not being uh, assessed properly and therefore being inadequate are also likely, uh, as is failure to provide adequate or any PPE. As we said before, the Personal Protective Equipment at Work Regulations 1992 requires suitable PPE to be provided where necessary. I think we're also going to see stress claims uh, regarding exposure to COVID-19, as well as uh, claims emanating from a failure to undertake and implement adequate workplace risk assessments to include access routes, one-way systems, doors being left over, staggered shifts, etc. There will be, I think, potential vicarious liability claims where people suffering symptoms of COVID-19 knowingly come into the workplace and affect others unwittingly or, sadly, even deliberately. I think you also need to consider vulnerable employees. Failure to make adaptions to their work environment conditions could also lead to claims. Really, we expect to see a lot of litigation arising from the failure to provide adequate PPE. The state of knowledge in relation to PPE will be important from government and the WHO, albeit that the guidance has been very woolly thus far. I think the main arguments in relation to PPE are going to be that the employer has failed to provide suitable PPE and thus failed to adequately control the risk. The PPE is not appropriate for the risk and does not fit correctly. That there's been a failure to train in the use of PPE or to maintain that PPE. And that there has been a failure altogether to adequately source the relevant PPE required. Some commentators have suggested that there may also be claims under the guise of COSH or the Control of Substances Hazardous to Health Regulations 2002 on the basis that COVID-19 is a biological agent and an employee's work activity has brought them into contact with it. The COSH regulations provide that every employer shall ensure that the exposure is reasonably prevented or where that is not reasonably practicable, it is adequately controlled. Adequately controlling will include displaying warning signs, having disinfection procedures, safe collection of contaminated waste, testing and hygiene measures to include washing facilities. The regulations also talk about vaccines, but that of course is not currently available. The employer will also need to demonstrate that it adequately and controlled exposure and health surveillance is going to be an important feature. Then I think we turn to those indirect claims which I mentioned before. These will be claims that have an indirect link to COVID-19 but do not involve an employee who has contracted the virus. Employees suffering accidents who are doing different roles to normal and have not been trained properly or have injured a colleague and therefore the business is vicariously liable. Claims where there are fewer employees available to carry out a particular function causing stress or injury to occur. I think there will be inevitably claims for mental health and stress type cases due to employees feeling isolated and having to adopt new ways of working. I think there'll be claims from home working and poor practices. The previously mentioned are focusing on employees who are still attending the workplace. But it's, of course, worth noting that the same uh, responsibilities apply to those home workers. 
Therefore, in respect of uh, any employees that work at home, either permanently or on a temporary basis, you should be considering the following. Making sure that you're keeping in touch with them on a regular basis, making sure that you know what work activities they're going to be doing and how long it's going to take. Make sure that the work they're doing can be done safely and put any control measures you need to in place to protect them. There will also be greater risk for loan workers with no direct supervision or anyone to help them if things go wrong. So it's important to keep in touch with loan workers in particular. So how about, Julian, where an employee refuses to return to work on the basis that they think they can work more effectively from home? Well, in those circumstances, the guidance, the government's published guidances on the workplace are on their side. It makes it clear, the guidance, that businesses and workplaces should make every reasonable effort to enable working from home as a first option. So employers will need to be able to show in terms of the fairness of any dismissal of an employee that refuses to return to work because they think they can work more effectively from home, that the employer has made every effort Um, to facilitate this and that it's just not possible in the context of the job. And I would suggest that's quite a high evidential threshold for for employers to satisfy. Yeah. And and how about then when an employee returns to work uh, or sorry, refuses to return to work on the basis that they hold a reasonable belief that there is a serious and imminent threat to their health? Uh, Well, there, there are certainly bear traps for the unwary employer because a dismissal based on health and safety reasons and or whistleblowing grounds is highly likely to be found to be an automatic unfair dismissal by an employment tribunal. Employers need to be aware that employers don't need the requisite two years service to claim unfair dismissal in such circumstances and also that the maximum amount of compensation which an employee can claim for unfair dismissal is presently set at a very high and heady £86,444 or 52 weeks gross salary, whichever is the lower figure. And that's in addition to the basic award, which can be awarded by the tribunal, which is up to a maximum of £15,750. That's calculated in precisely the same way as statutory redundancy entitlement. Employers also need to be aware in the case of employees that are categorised as vulnerable, whether extremely vulnerable or clinically vulnerable under the guidance. Extremely vulnerable, for example, would be a cancer sufferer. Clinically vulnerable would be someone with an underlying health condition such as asthma or diabetes. So the guidance there is, um, well, certainly in the case of extremely vulnerable employees, they should be working from home. And in the case of vulnerable employees that the employer needs to be taking some steps in terms of making sure that they're protected in the workplace. But from an employment law perspective, both categories of employees that fall into the category of vulnerable for the purposes of the guidance are highly likely to be covered by the Equality Act 2010, that their conditions will qualify as disabilities and therefore afford them protection under the Act. So you've also got the spectre for employers of... um, discrimination claims as well. And when it comes to discrimination claims, those claims attract far higher 
ticket value in terms of um, compensation and damages because there's no cap on the level of compensation that employee can claim um, for discrimination claims. There's also another element to the claim, a damages for injury to feelings, which is banded between 900 and at the lower end and £45,000 at uh, serious offences at the higher end under the what are termed the Vento guidelines. And on top of that, um, tribunals can also award damages for aggra- aggravated damages as well, depending on uh, on the seriousness of the offences. So um, employers do need to be aware that um, there could be a high level of uh, unanticipated liability for the organisation if they get it wrong in, in, in the case of vulnerable employees. They should certainly take legal advice before uh, pulling the trigger on any dismissals. So for businesses welcoming employees back, Philip, what what do they need to be doing in preparation? Really, I think the same issues apply here as to your earlier question about what steps to take uh, to keep seconded staff safe on someone else's uh, site. Firstly, if you've not got one already, make sure that you have a COVID-19 plan in place. I think it's also a good idea to put put together a COVID management group of senior leaders from all functions within your business to consider and implement policy changes resulting from this crisis and to implement your COVID-19 plan. Your management team should ensure that communications with employees on new systems and processes are consistent, clear and also well documented. To recap on the other steps, uh, you need to be thinking about, of course, safe systems of work. These documents should be reviewed and amended to include additional measures that have been implemented in response to COVID-19 and also updated as the pandemic and working practices evolve. You need to be thinking about risk assessments. Again, these need to be reviewed in light of the crisis and in respect of any changes to the systems of work. Government guidance is also changing rapidly, so keep this under review. PPE. Is there a need for PPE? If there is, make sure you consider how much you need and where you're going to source it from. You also need to consider the supply assessment of and maintenance of any PPE to staff. Make sure you keep all of the risk assessments and records on training, as these will be vital for defensibility reasons later on, should litigation arise. I think you need to be thinking about the workplace uh, and social distancing position. As I said before, it will be necessary to review and to respond to any future guidelines and to ensure suitable adaptions are made. In communal areas, it's recommended that there are posters highlighting the need for people to wash their hands and use hand sanitizers. Consider whether it may be necessary to close communal areas completely to avoid gatherings uh, and where possible restrict numbers of people into the office workplace. Where necessary, you may need to implement a staff rotor system and consider a staggered start time to avoid too many people in the workplace. You need to be considering how people will get to work, whether they're using public transport, and you should also ensure that business travel is curtailed for the time being. Finally, you also need to ensure that people know to report any symptoms of COVID-19 and that where they do report such symptoms, they are sent home. It's really important that you report any COVID, suspected COVID-19 places via the RIDOR system to the HSE and keep a record of doing this. Uh, I think if you're taking all of these steps, then you're really doing all that you can to in- ensure you have a smooth transition from lockdown back into the workplace. So, uh, Julian, can you explain the relevance of transfer of undertakings uh, for protection of employment, otherwise known as 2P regulations, to this return to work environment and some of the potential liabilities that may arise out of this? Well, the ongoing economic crisis caused by COVID-19 provides an unprecedented commercial opportunity for businesses that are robust enough to weather the storm. 
they may be looking to acquire distressed businesses um, and uh, or, or businesses that are in an insolvency situation. And these purchases raise a number of important employment issues um, for the acquiring business that they need to consider, not least of which is the um, relevance and application of QP. Where the business is being acquired as a going concern, it's highly likely that um, the transfer of undertakings, protection of employment regulations, to give it its more common name, QP, will apply. And this will have the effect that after the transfer is completed, all of the transferor's responsibilities in connection with the contract's employment transfer to the new employer. So that means that the new employer, that's the acquiring business that's rescuing the business, will take on responsibilities for the, um, the staff's contracts of employment. So everything transfers across terms and conditions of employment, pay, allowances, hours, redundancy in time, holidays, sickness arrangements, they all transfer across uh, and together with any um, pre-existing claims, all transfer across to new employers, so, which is why it's really important that the acquiring business does its homework um, and uh, carries out proper due diligence. So um, under QP, the outgoing employer, the selling business, needs to provide the acquiring business with employee liability information. Um, And that information needs to be provided not less than 28 days before the transfer. Used to be 14 days, it's now 28 days. And that employee liability information will, will tell the business everything, the acquiring business, everything they need to know about what they're taking on. Now, the acquiring business also needs to be aware that they've got information and consultation obligations as well. So um, they need to um, inform and consult with the employees that they're acquiring as part of the GP transfer in relation to any measures they're taking in terms of any proposed changes to pay, hours of work, job descriptions, and any dismissals taking place post-acquisition. Um and it's important that that um, takes place. The penalty, if it doesn't take place, is up to 13 weeks gross pay to all affected employees. And um, in relation to any changes that take place post-transfer to terms and conditions, any dismissals that take place after the acquiring business has acquired the business, then if it can be found, if it can be said that those um, changes or dismissals are connected with the transfer or by reason of the transfer, then in the case of the, the change to terms and conditions, they won't be effective in terms of dismissals. It will trigger an automatic unfair dismissal. So again, so liabilities for the um, acquiring business there. So it's important that that business is aware. Now, in the case of insolvent businesses, they don't necessarily take on the acquiring business doesn't necessarily take on all of the liabilities. It depends on the type of insolvency situation. So where there's an an administration involved, there's now what seems to be a clear line of case law. seems clear that GP will transfer the employment of the affected employees to the new owners, but the new owners won't pick up certain debts due to those employees arising at the sale. The employees could instead ask for those debts within certain limits to be paid by the state's redundancy payments office. Where a company is in liquidation, however, and parts of its business are sold by the liquidator, GP doesn't apply at all. So the employees of the liquidated company cannot expect to be transferred automatically to the buyer and the buyer will not pick up any pre-acquisition debts in relation to those employees. So good lawyer's answer, it depends on the situation as to um, GP, its application, the extent to which it applies and uh, what the 
acquiring business needs to watch out for. So what about business immigration requirements too? Are there particular considerations for organizations bringing employees in from abroad? Yeah, well, in terms of bringing in migrant workers from abroad, um, the situation at present because of the global pandemic is that most visa application centers overseas are closed. The websites of VFS, Global and TLS contacts contain further information on specific locations, but we're pretty much shut at the moment, making any inward migration of uh, workers from abroad difficult. VFS Global has also set up a, a number of uh, F, frequently asked questions, FAQs, dealing uh, with a range of practical issues. So it's worth having a look at that for employers uh, looking to bring people in from abroad, uh, workers in from abroad. Uh, of course, now we have the additional spectre of quarantine measures being introduced by the government. So that's going to add a further complication on obstacle for employers who want to bring in migrant workers at this present time. In relation to migrant workers who are already here, though, there are a number of considerations that um, employers who have sponsorship licences need to be thinking about. They need to be thinking about ensuring that, that they're properly reporting changes in circumstances in relation to migrant workers and also right to work checks. They need to be looking at that also. So dealing with these requirements in turn, reporting duties, many businesses have altered employees working hours or salary during the COVID-19 pandemic, whether by furloughing under the coronavirus job retention scheme or altering contractual terms and conditions. Now, these changes all trigger reporting requirements. And as best practice, we would recommend uh, that employers update the sponsor management system, SMS, to give it its um, shortened name, with this information. Now, as employers return to the workplace, employers should also ensure they remain on top of their reporting obligations and do so within the reporting timeframe stipulated under Tier 2 and Tier 5 reporting guidance. What about employees whose role or duties are changing. COVID-19 has forced many businesses to reduce their workforces um, and the impact that it's had on staff is those who haven't been made redundant or had their working hours reduced. They have maybe have had to move into new roles or take on new responsibilities. Well, sponsored migrants who do change roles, any changes in, in their roles and responsibilities, once again, it needs to be uh, recorded on the SMS system. We need to make sure that that's kept up to date. Now, right to work checks, that's interesting because a lot of people are working remotely at the moment and the Home Office have introduced temporary measures effective of from the 30th of March 2020 to enable employers to carry out right-to-work checks remotely during the pandemic. So it's important that uh, employers do continue to carry out those checks regardless of the fact that everyone is working remotely or most people working remotely still at the moment. Any redundancies, of course, they need to be reported under the SMS system. Any migrant workers being made redundant because obviously they will have, no longer have the ability to work. And then finally, with people working from home, that's quite an interesting one. A lot of people are continuing to work from home. Many employers are considering a staggered approach to returning to the office. This means that key personnel listed on the sponsor license, as well as sponsored migrants themselves, may still be working from home at this present time. Now, the Home Office guidance is relatively silent on working from home, but the practice has historically been frowned upon from a compliance perspective. Now, Clarification is being sought from the Home Office as to whether long-term home working is acceptable for sponsored migrants. 
if suitable processes and procedures were implemented to ensure that businesses could effectively monitor those these workers while adopting a more nimble approach to working. So although key personnel are permitted to work from home, BLM, we would recommend that um, consideration is given as to how migrant workers can effectively be monitored by the business whilst working from home, uh, if working from home becomes um, the norm. Mm-hmm.